This is worth repeating from Texas Public Radio. Real stories told by your neighbors and friends and recorded live over the last couple of years in San Antonio. I'm Andrea Vocab Sanderson, San Antonio Poet Laureate. There's a special emotional minefield that comes with keeping a secret from some of the people in your life, but not others. If you can pull it off, it's the best of both worlds. Your secret is out, but not out. What could go wrong? In our first story today, told by Ariel Antoine, we're going to tread carefully through that minefield. Um, hi, I'm Ariel. Most people know me as Ari. Um, that's what I go by in my professional life, and that's my nickname. A smaller fraction of people knows me as L. And who is L, you might ask? L is my most fearless self. She walks into the room and she is the baddest bitch there. <laughs> she is sensuality embodied. She empowers herself like no other person or thing can. It's when I vibrate at my highest frequency. I'm L. And Elle's also a stripper, kind of. <laughs> I am not an actual stripper. I am a burlesque performer. It is very, very different. Strippers make actual money. So. <laughs> it, they do. <laughs> oh, you laugh, but it's true. I have so much student loans. <laughs> So burlesque is not helping me pay for any of that. It is more like feeding my soul. I'm very open about it now because it's kind of taken over my life and going in a direction that I couldn't have even imagined it going. It wasn't always like that. When I was 23, I was in 2015, um, I did what every uh, broke post-college kid does and get the first job that they can, um, which is teaching for a lot of people, right? <laughs> so I became a middle school French teacher. I hope none of the children are in this audience, because <laughs> they'd be 18 by now. So I took this job thinking that I could keep these things separate, right? This world will not touch this world at all. They're too different. And then I realized I live in San Antonio, <laughs> where there are literally two degrees of separation from everyone. <laughs> and I'm from here, so it's more like one. <laughs> in my naivete, I kept performing burlesque as much as I could about once a month while I was still teaching. And I always thought I would be outed, if you will, um, by a parent who saw me and thought negatively. Um, but I was not. Um, I started seeing my performer name, L-E-L-L-E, -L -L -E, written on my whiteboard. There's more. <laughs> and I just thought, Oh, you know, like my French teaching is really getting through to them. That, that's the <laughs> 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 
like, feminine singular pronoun. They're really, they're really getting it. So I just kept erasing it. That happened again and again and again. Didn't want to feed my paranoia. So the next week, I believe, after that, in the fall of 2015, my administrators called me into a meeting, two admins. Undisclosed, not on my calendar, just a little hush-hush meeting after school for something that popped up on social media. And I thought, oh, I'm fucked. (laughs) I was, like, packing my bags, like, taking down my classroom stuff, which is not easy if any of you know a teacher. (laughs) And I was ready. I came in fully armed. Just I practiced a speech in the bathroom mirror. I fantasized about walking out of the classroom and slamming the door on them. And I came into the meeting with my administrators there, and they asked me, so who's El Jour? And I said confidently, El Jour is my burlesque performer name. That's what I do on the weekends. I'm super proud of it. I've been doing it since college, and I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. And they said the most unexpected thing. <laughs> they said, okay. <laughs> I'm sitting here sweating bullets for you to tell me okay. And I was relieved, but not for too long. My admin reminded me that, you know, we're all adults and we all have personal lives and that they all have things as administrators that they don't want people to know about. But that's just the thing. I did want people to know about it. I have to get asses in seats. (laughs) So... How do I play on that when I'm a teacher that requires me to be anonymous, but I'm part of this thing that requires me not to be anonymous? Didn't have to uh, deliberate for too long. (laughs) So it all came to a head um, after an eighth grade girl, just one instance where an eighth grade girl ruined someone's life, right? I was an eighth grade girl once. (laughs) I was not this girl, though. So she got in trouble for something that she did after school. I reprimanded her, and she had in her arsenal burlesque hanging over my head. So she decided to write on a note three words that were meant to kill me. El du jour. And she spelled it wrong. So, high on kind of confidence that was false, and paranoia, and with no HR department in sight throughout this whole entire process, somehow, I wrote a strongly worded email, yes, (laughs) Uh, six paragraphs long to be exact, to my administrators, and I CC'd the regional director of the school, schools. (laughs) Mistake number one. (laughs) But I don't take it back just because that personified exactly how I felt in the moment, which was targeted and 
unjustly ashamed of something that was supposed to empower me from the least expected place. And I didn't know that was sitting there until then. So, guns blazing, I sent that email. The next day, the regional director was called into a meeting with me and my admin, who instilled confidence in me. And said administrator lied to discredit me and basically said that I was giving in to bullying. But I thought it was something worth fighting for. And I know that it was, and I know that that was either where the behavior was going to begin or where it was going to end. So I drew a line in the sand, and I said, I'm done. But they decided to drag it out a bit more. They called in a corporate lawyer, and that lawyer uh, depositioned me a few days later in school. Uh, We had a recorded conversation for two hours where uh, he punctuated it with basically telling me that I signed an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. In that non-disclosure agreement, I signed away my life, essentially saying that I would not hold another job. I could hold another job as long as it did not conflict in interest with my current job. And I had admitted that there was a conflict of interest verbatim in the email that I sent. So, came back to bite me, and once he said that, I just knew two things. I knew I was done, and I knew that corporate lawyers are soulless people. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone's a corporate lawyer, you're fine. Make your money. (laughs) (laughs) But I just had to gather my pride, clean out my classroom. And I was told I was fired over the phone, by the way, (laughs) from someone in corporate in Arizona. My administrators couldn't even face me. (laughs) So I punished myself for a really long time about this. I went into a really dark depression. I didn't go out for many jobs because I thought that I wasn't good enough or eligible because people would see me as incapable or slutty or faulted, I guess. And... I know that that thinking was wrong, and I had to go through that dark time to get to where I am today. I was unemployed for three months. I wasn't eligible for benefits because of the way I was fired. And I had basically just started my adult life. I had credit card debt and student loans and my first big girl apartment, and I literally had basically blown up my life as I knew it in a week because of something that I loved dearly and did not want to let go of. So I fucking doubled down. (laughs) (laughs) Shit, I don't have anything else to lose. I already lost my job. I started doing burlesque more. I started teaching yoga more. I got more in touch with myself, all that woo-woo shit. (laughs) And I really found myself in the darkest place that I could have been. 
I used a lot of free time, which I had because I was unemployed, <laughs> to apply to a, te- a teaching assistantship in France, which I got that spring, and I taught in France. Um, there weren't any hiccups there because French people don't give a fuck about your personal life. <laughs> so. It's true. C'est vrai. And that was a great way to spend a year, you know, after this very traumatic experience. I had a year working eight hours a week, (laughs) getting a living wage and just kind of relaxing into myself and owning myself in a different country where I had to make a life. And so I work in tech now um, where no one cares about what you do after work. It's great. And burlesque is really growing, it's changing into something, it's kind of going beyond me, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, It's growing at this rate that I never could have imagined had I still been shackled by teaching or a job that would hold that against me. And I owe that to three words scribbled on a piece of paper. So I stand here before you, revealing more than I ever have at a burlesque show, to say, I know who I am, I know what I'm capable of, and I have nothing to hide. Thank you. Next, a woman versus nature story that doesn't take place in the far-flung wilderness, but right here on the San Antonio River in a canoe. It's told by Kelly Stone. Y'all, my story begins where it ends, in the San Antonio Bay. I'm there washing my feet with goat's milk soap and ocean flower sugar scrub. I've got sage and other hippie accoutrements with me because I'm trying to put forth positive intentions with a new moon ritual. And I'm trying to put forth these positive intentions because I'm preparing for the Texas water safari. It's a canoe race. It's known as the world's toughest canoe race. It starts at the headwaters of the San Marcos River, and it continues all the way to the Gulf of Mexico at Sea Drift, Texas, in the San Antonio Bay. 262 miles. Racers have 100 hours to complete the race. So naturally, I was washing my feet in it and hoping for positivity. I'd planned to be alone during this ritual, but all these people kept showing up. Other racers, other safari racers, apparently had their own superstitions of paying their respects to the finish line, and they were happy to see my sage and rose petals and whatnot and participated in my little ritual. Apparently, other racers for the rest of the training season referred to me as Bay Mama, uh, without my knowledge. So the day of the race came. I haven't told you what I decided to challenge myself with. It wasn't just a canoe race, but... I had heard that the hardest way to do this race was in a C1 boat. It's a solo boat without a rudder in the back. You have to paddle with a single blade. And that sounded really sexy to me. (laughs) 
And then I heard that only six women had ever finished the Texas water safari in a C1 boat in the 50 plus year history of the race. And that sounded really sexy to me. To be the seventh woman to finish? I was born on August 7th. Seven has always been my lucky number. I wanted to be the seventh woman to finish in a C1 boat. And the day of the race came, I was real excited and nervous, and I had competition. Veronica was also trying to finish and become the seventh woman in a C1 boat. So we were friendly, we took selfies at the beginning of the race, but we were competitive. We leapfrogged our way down the river the whole first day. I'd pass her at a portage, she'd pass me at a turn. It was fun and exciting, and then it started to get dark. We'd been paddling about 12 hours. I pulled over to the side to put lights on my boat, because you need those to paddle in the dark. And as I was adjusting my light, Veronica passed me. I scrambled, I got it together, and I caught her easily. <laughs> We're paddling alongside each other, basically with, you know, flashlights taped to the front of our boats, and she says, hey, Kelly, I think something's wrong with your light. My light was pointed up, it was catching the top of the tree line and not the river in front of me, and I said, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it when we get to Palmetto. We had about three more miles till there was a big bridge and a big portage, no big deal, and in that moment, she took the current of the river and I crashed into a log. I flipped out of my boat and I didn't panic. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy taught us anything. It taught us don't panic, right? Step one when you're adventuring. So I was collecting my things. It was cool. I'd flipped out of my boat before. And that's when the fast water from the son of Autine Rapids that were flowing down grabbed the back of my stern and started to wrap my boat around the log in a taco shape. In the gunnels, you could hear them cracking. And you could hear out of my face hole, no! As I lifted my broken boat off the log, that's the last Veronica saw of me in the Texas water safari. <laughs> so my limp broken boat, I floated it to a gravel bar right down from the log and I had to get to work. This was not gonna end my race. I had packed supplies. The only supplies you can get from other people are food, water, and medicine. So you have to have everything in the boat. And I had a knife and I had Gorilla Tape and I had a tiny bottle of Gorilla Glue and I had all these zip ties because everybody says you need zip ties in case of an emergency. And I was like, what do you do with the zip ties? I had no idea. So I took my Gorilla Tape and I taped my whole boat up. <laughs> And I paddled the next three miles to get to Palmetto. And by the time I got there, my gorilla tape was flopping off the boat, like streamers. Like it was a ticker tape parade, party of one, boat building. And that's what I did for four hours there at Palmetto. I rebuilt my boat with sticks and reinforced the gunnels with the zip ties and put holes in the boat with my knife. And then I paddled off at about 4 a.m. into the night, not knowing if my boat was going to sink or not. I paddled the next day the next night, the next day, the next night. As the next day was approaching, it was about 71 hours at this point, and the thing is, they, they serve a shrimp dinner at the 75-hour mark of the race, and I wanted my shrimp dinner, and I was nearing the end of the river, but then there's eight miles of ocean with all these waves, and so I chose not to put a raincoat, a skirt on my boat to protect me against the big waves, and I just took off because they said the bay was glass, it was glass, it was glass, it was the easiest bay anyone had had, and an alligator crossed in front of me like a black cat, and I should have known that was a sign. 
I made it past the barge canal. I was getting close to my shrimp dinner. I was doing it. I was doing it. And then the sky closed in and darkened and a monsoon (laughs) rained upon me. When I got home and I saw the paper, it said, what we have here is a squall line. (laughs) And I was blown backwards. I was tossed about. I made it to the shore and I hunkered down until I saw a rainbow as my sign to go. And I took off and I paddled hard and I got to the finish line and I finished that race in 78 hours. And I missed my shrimp dinner. (laughs) But it is said that that hippie ritual I had done meant that I took on all the problems of the bay for myself to make it easier for everyone else. And so I lived out the name Bay Mama. And that is the story of how I became the eighth woman to finish the Texas Water Safari in a C1 boat. Thank you. Rafael Antigua remembers Tuesday, September 11, 2001, as starkly as anyone. He recalls his first encounter with the post-9-11 America. My father hails from the La República Dominicana, uh, the little city of Dajabón on the border with Haiti. So I'm biracial. My, my father's Dominican. My mother's from Columbia, South Carolina, African-American. Uh, my father had joined the service, joined the Army by way of New York, got stationed at Fort Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina, met my mother, who was an up-and-coming R&B singer, uh, but left her career to raise myself and my brother. Um, But growing up as an Army brat, it really opened my eyes to multiculturalism. It opened my eyes to a variety of different ethnicities, cultures, religions, and things of that nature. But even though though at the same time, I was still trying to figure out who I was. I didn't speak Spanish fluently. I wasn't quite black enough. So where do I fit? And then on top of that, my father is Roman Catholic, my mother's Baptist. <laughs> so I'm going to praise and worship, I'm going to mass, and I'm confused. And so that marriage didn't last long. My mother remarried, uh, my stepfather, uh, African-American, half African, he biracial as well, African-American, Japanese. Learn some Buddhism along the way. (laughs) So, just so you know, that's what happens. Roman Catholic, Baptist, sprinkle some Buddhism, Muslim. (laughs) So, fast forward, I decided to become a Muslim at the age of 17. And uh, this is in 1994. And I joined the United States Air Force. I did 14 years enlisted time with the United States Air Force, and during those 14 years, I deployed. I went to Kuwait for Operation uh, Southern Watch. Uh, I went to Afghanistan in 2002, and I went to Iraq in 2003. And I, I want to use that as a platform 
because it was really in the in 2001, September 11th, where my identity became more questionable, not only for myself, but for my fellow citizens whom I was serving and I serve to this day. And so I'm going to tell you a story of what happened. Every, everybody here, if you were alive during that time, you know where you were on September 11th, 2001. For me, I was enlisted in the Air Force Station at Yokota Air Base, Japan. And I was flying back to the United States right here, San Antonio, right here. My father had retired out of Fort Sam, got set up here in San Antonio, came to visit with my three-year-old daughter at the time. And I was here with him for a week. And on September 11th, early morning, got to the airport, San Antonio airport, got on the plane and we took off, headed towards Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. But we had a changeover in Atlanta. Well, that morning, the pilot comes over the intercom on the, on, the, on the plane and says, well, ladies and gentlemen, we have to land. We're, little, we're over Little Rock, Arkansas at this point. We have to land. It's like, okay, we don't know what's going on. We can't tell you what's going on. We don't know anything more than what I'm telling you. We've been ordered to land. We have to land right now. So please don't ask any questions. You'll find out when we land. So we land. Now, for my veterans that are in the audience, you know that when we go on leave, we don't shave, primarily. I don't shave when I'm on leave. This is something that we do with regularity while we're in uniform. But as soon as we take off the uniform and we're on vacation, let it grow, let it grow. So I had a full beard by this time. And being a Muslim, I wore a white kufi and a white thobe on September 11th. So the plane lands in Little Rock, Arkansas. I let everyone get off the plane. I'm with my three-year-old daughter. She sleeps, so I just wanted to let everybody get off. Grabbed her, picked her up, grabbed our carry-ons, go out of the plane, go up into the terminal, and everyone, I see it crying, yelling, screaming, just in complete shock as to what they're seeing on the television screens. And then what occurs, everybody's face looks my way. And they, what do they see? Do they see an American citizen, a man who has served at that, at that point seven years in the military? No. What they see is what they think, what they conceive to be someone from the Middle East. And so there were reactions towards me. I grabbed my daughter, security from airport, from the airport security men, three men walk up to me, sir, you need to come with us. What have I done? Nothing. Fortunately, they were there for my security. They escorted me out of the airport to a Greyhound bus so that I can, myself and my daughter and others elderly from the plane could be driven to Atlanta. When I arrived to Atlanta, as many of you, if you remember, all of the airports, all of the uh, airports had been shut down. 
all the hotels were filled up. So there was no place for me and my daughter to sleep except for in the airport. Well, there were many people in the local area of Atlanta that came to the airport to open up their homes, say, come on in. Stay with us until the planes continue or you have some other means of transportation. And so I remember that my daughter, for those of you that have been to the Atlanta airport, you know how large it is. Well, it became empty in the middle of the night. It was completely empty except for the janitorial crew. So it was just myself and my daughter. But there was a family, husband, wife, and three little children that came to the airport looking for someone to come into their homes. And they were wearing, now remember what I was wearing, white kufi, white thobe, full beard. And they walked past myself and my daughter. We were asleep on the bench. And I heard the, overheard the conversation. Well, um, we got to have somebody. We got to open our home to somebody, and they're the only ones here. Yeah, but they look kind of, mm, the guy there, I don't know. Uh, sure about this? Now, what they were wearing, we love Jesus. <laughs> T-shirts, all, the whole family. So the, the husband, uh, he says, you know, dear, uh, I think we need to. I think it's the right thing to do. So he approaches me, he says, excuse me, sir. I sit up on the bench. I said, yes, uh, what can I do for you? He says, actually, we're here to do something for you. We want to open up our home to you. Uh, would you please join us? Well, by this time, it was 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. My mother and my stepfather from uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, were already driving in, so they were only about an hour out. But I expressed my appreciation to him. I also told him who I was. I gave him my identity, military ID card. Shown that I was in the, in the service. He thanked me for my service. And he actually apologized. He apologized for any current and or future challenges that you may face. That sat with me up until this day. Because from that moment forward, whether that was being deployed to Afghanistan the year after, six, seven months later, or deployed the following year in 2003 to Iraq, and hearing and understanding that the way that people engage me is because of the lens by which they see me. And I have to respect that, and I acknowledge that, but at the same time opening up doors such as this one, let me get to know you and you get to know me let us break bread and share our stories in the hopes that we come to an understanding that our identity is not limited to our parents. Our identity is not limited to who our parents are, where they came from, their ethnicity, what our religious identity may be. Our identity truly rests in the fact that you're a human being and I'm a human being. And I have to have the same dignity and respect for you as you have for me. And I think if we all come to that understanding, we will have such a great, much better world. Thank you very much.
To close out today's episode, a story from Amber Megan that takes us back into nature about the reflections of humanity we sometimes get a glimpse of in the natural world. When I was 20 years old, the National Park Service came to St. Mary's University, where I was going to college, to recruit for summer interns. And one of my good friends, Mary, and I thought this sounded like the best idea that we could possibly do with our summer, and so we applied. We were over the moon to be selected. Um, And then we were even more grateful when the Park Service gave us four national parks in Alaska that we could choose from. So we chose Katmai National Park. And you really only choose Katmai if you want to go see one thing, pretty much anyway. That's a grizzly bear. So we were a little crazy. Um, I can't tell you exactly what I envisioned, but I thought that I would be giving tours and showing them flowers and mountains. And when I got there, they took us into a training room and started teaching us the basics. My two big takeaways were, one, The bears would be coming out of hibernation in two weeks. And we'd be sharing the same ground. The second thing was that in the rare occurrence of an attack, most likely they would go after small children. But if there were no small children, the next likely case is a small female. Did y'all see him lower the mic? (laughs) But I genuinely came to love Alaska. And I became pretty brave or or ignorant, one of the two, and I would day hike by myself. Um, On one particular day, I chose to day hike a mountain while some of my new friends were stationed at the river, um, the Brooks River. And on this particular day, my friend Letha was in charge. Her, her fort or her place was to warn fishermen. She would just yell out, bear, if, <laughs> if a bear was going to basically have an easy lunch. And so that particular day, um, there was a mother, a mother bear and a, and a cub that were crossing the river. And the cubs, they were just like little puppies. Like they were so cute. And you know, like you can't get within 100 yards of them, but... They really were just fluffy and adorable. And so you always watched with a close eye what they were doing. And the, the mother cub, there was, that was really the only time that you actually saw bears in community because they're very isolated animals. And so they began to cross the river, and everyone is watching the cub. And unfortunately, there was someone else who was also watching the cub. There was a male grizzly who considered the cub to be a great threat. And so in a flash... He swam over, he sunk his teeth into the baby bear's neck, and he started tossing it around like a rag doll. And I've wondered, surely the mama bear was probably underwater looking for a fish. And I think that the male grizzly bear saw his opportunity because no male, anyone, would have been brave enough to do that on land, but she was in a vulnerable position. And so I think when she came up for air, she heard people screaming, no, and she heard the squeal of her own baby literally being ripped apart in front of her. It was obviously tragic. I felt like I had been spared from seeing it. My friend often had nightmares, rightfully so, about the occasion. 
But in the weeks to come, that mama bear would return to the river, and she would get in the water at the same place, and she would swim back and forth and back and forth. And it makes me wonder, was she berating herself? Was I under the water? Like, how did I not see this coming? Or was it also maybe that she was so traumatized by the fact that she just couldn't accept it and she came back looking for him? I don't know those answers. By the end of the summer, I had seen a new kind of life and death and beauty. It was everywhere, even in the vegetation. There's a beautiful flower that's called fireweed. And despite its name, it's not a weed. It's actually um, this beautiful perennial magenta flower that spreads um, across mountainsides and all across the land. And how it actually earned its name is because of its ability to grow where fires have occurred. It takes the opportunity to soak up the sun where other plants have unfortunately burned. Quite literally, its beauty rising from the ashes. So actually later that same year, I met my now husband And we bonded over our love for nature and adventure. One of our first trips was actually to Big Bend National Park. And um, in 2007, we were married. In 2008, we were excited to find out we were expecting our first child. And his name is Kelly. Kelly started saying things like, it's going to be twins. (laughs) And I I was nervous about that, I think kind of for obvious reasons. And um, at one point the doctor showed us on an ultrasound a single baby, and he looked at him and said, I still think we're going to have twins. (laughs) So a couple of weeks later, in a routine ultrasound, his gut instinct that was somehow deep in his bones came to fruition, at least potentially. They could see two flickers on the screen, but they couldn't find the second baby. And if you're confused, so were we. There's actually a case study on us. Everyone was confused. Nobody could really figure out what was, what was happening. And at, um, when I was four months along, I didn't feel the butterflies of their movement. And I just knew. So Kelly picked me up from work and took me to our doctor's office. And the room was completely silent. The... Um, the sweet woman in the room was trying to like make jokes to lighten the room and lighten the mood, and then it went completely silent. She put the wand up to my stomach, and there was no sound. So the twins that I was pregnant with, Sean and Liam, what we came to learn over, over many months was that they were actually semi-conjoined. They had their own beautiful bodies, but there was a connective tissue between them. And somewhere along the line, they had developed a relatively common um, syndrome. It's called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. Um, Probably would have been a relatively easy uh, procedure had they made it to term, but unfortunately, obviously, you know, they did not. That day was October 8th, and I remember walking outside and just feeling so confused that the sky was so blue, and the... The air, you know, you know the transition into October. It's just beautiful in central Texas. And uh, it felt like this oxymoron. How could this be happening? And then October 9th, I was admitted into the hospital um, to be induced for delivery. And 
despite my best efforts, my body just wasn't ready to, to deliver Sean and Liam. And I ended up delivering them on October 10th. This is significant because October 10th is actually my birthday. And so <laughs> it, was, it was confusing. It had always been a day of celebration, and now I felt like there would always be this synonymous and obvious reason for feeling sadness. So they handed us our stillborn babies in a small blue box that had a, a moon and it had stars painted on it. And I flashed back to Mama Bear because I now understood I was swimming in my own river of grief and of disbelief. And I was wondering, was my head underwater at some point? Like, did I miss something? Did I do something wrong? And I kept revisiting it to the point where I, I started going to therapy and the counselor told me, you have PTSD. This is a loop. And I wondered, maybe Mama Bear was stuck in a loop too. When I started writing this story, it had actually never occurred to me that the only time Mama Bear actually had a chance at community was with her baby that had literally been mauled in front of her. And it ripped my soul apart. It was hard to think about. But it made me all the more grateful for our community. And so what I would leave you guys with tonight is just the encouragement that as a community, when we go through these experiences where everything seemingly burns down around us, we do have the opportunity to connect as a community, to grow, to soak up the sun, and we too can be beauty that rises from the ashes. Thank you. The storytellers you just heard received guidance from story coaches Paul Flav and Bergen Streetman. We'll be holding live storytelling events again as soon as it's safe to do so. If you have a story to tell or you know someone with a great story, get in touch with us at tpr.org. Worth Repeating events are produced by Paul Flav and Kim Johnson. The podcast is produced by Ben Henry. Our news director is Dan Katz. Production assistance from Rob Martinez and Kyle Perez. Bobby Saluccia is TPR's Vice President of Marketing and Communications. Joyce Slocum is TPR's President and CEO. Again, I'm Andrea Vocab Sanderson, San Antonio Poet Laureate, and I'll talk to you again next time.